Welcome back to Basecamp and to our study of biblical manhood and womanhood. In today's episode, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be answering a couple of common questions that come up anytime we we talk about biblical manhood and womanhood. And so we're going to be chatting through a number of those common questions, both from a theological and a practical state uh, or or stance, and, and then talking about some of those things and how we would respond to them in light of everything that we have learned so far in our study. So again, if you haven't listened to some of our previous episodes, uh, please go back and do that as this will be sort of a summation as we're nearing the very end. This is our second to the last episode of our Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series. So with no further ado, here we go answering some common questions on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And as we're getting started today, I want us to think about Proverbs 18:17, which says, "The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him." And that is that is very true, right? Whether it's in a courtroom or a conference room, in a coffee shop, or even within the walls of a local church, at one time or another, we've all found ourselves participating in or watching uh, two people engage in a conversation where one person is in disagreement with, or at least questions the validity of another person's claim. In other words, it doesn't take very long to find out that in life, not everyone always agrees with what you believe about any given topic. (laughs) Truer words have never been spoken. The last two years uh, have really accentuated that in a whole new way. And the topic of manhood and womanhood, as it is taught in the scriptures, is one of those areas that Christians haven't always agreed upon and still don't, which is kind of the focus of our discussion today and of this episode. So just to summarize, over the last 11 episodes or so, we've been staring at the important topic of manhood and womanhood as it is taught through the Bible. We've looked at our theological foundation from the creation account, right, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we find that both men and women were created in the image of God. Therefore, by their very being or essence, men and women are created equal in value, worth, dignity, and importance. And though men and women are created equal by God, what we've also seen is that God has given us distinct dispositions as men and women, which we display as we bear his image. We are complementary, men and women are. And so in scripture, these created inclinations are formalized into particular roles that men and women are called to fulfill, right? In the home and in the church. So, whether you're single or married and serving in the local church or living out your callings in the workplace, the essence of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity remain true. They remain true. So let's see about the two uh, overarching statements that we've had. So first, biblical masculinity. What is it? What does it mean to be a man as, as the Bible defines it? Well, biblical masculinity is displayed in a sense of benevolent responsibility to work God's creation, to provide for and protect others, and to express loving sacrificial leadership in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. If you want a full episode on that, we we did that already, and you can go back and listen to that whole episode just on what does it mean to be a man. 
And then secondly, the question of the day, what is a woman? Well, biblical femininity, we had, a, again, an entire episode on this. Biblical femininity is displayed in a gracious disposition to cultivate life, to help others flourish, and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. Now, again, if you have questions on that, please go back and listen to that episode. It'll be in the show notes for you. And so what, what we're going to be doing in this episode is really seeking to accomplish two things at once. So firstly, we want to recognize that not all Christians agree on the distinct roles that God has given men and women, right? particularly how it gets lived out in contexts like the local church and home. And then secondly, we want to answer some, though not all, of the most common questions uh, to the Bible's teaching on gender. And so you might be sitting here and asking yourself as you're listening to this episode, why, why do people who profess to be Christians differ on this issue? Like why, <laughs> how can Christians, looking at the same Bible, how, how can we have different thoughts on this issue? Right? Why is there disagreement? There's a number of reasons uh, that, that come from that. First is culture, right? All of us hold certain values, expectations, and beliefs that are largely unquestioned in our own culture. Or in other words, we all grew up in a particular culture. And, and while culture has much that is beautiful and good, every human culture is fallen in different ways, right? Romans chapter 1 says we've all suppressed the truth about God. Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are deceptive. Right, so it's possible that certain invisible cultural values have shaped our instincts so that the Bible's teaching seems off in some way. So culture is a reason we might disagree. Uh, tradition is a reason we might disagree. Right? Generally speaking, the longer you sit under a particular teaching, the, the deeper your conviction will be in that. Right? If that's what you were taught growing up or or if your particular denomination taught this regularly, you, you may begin to accept things w without further investigating them or exploring them. So maybe tradition. Third might be ignorance. Right? If a person has only been excused to one view, then they will have a more difficulty weighing out if their position is right or not. Or maybe they've been, they've been told to not question anything and just blindly accept things. And then four, uh, there could be poor examples. Right? Like if someone has seen a particular view used to either support sin or abuse in, in, in the lives of people around them, then this will naturally affect their perception of that view. And then fifthly, there's, there can be an incorrect interpretation of Scripture. Right? Simply not reading a verse or a set of verses in its immediate biblical context and how that fits within all of Scripture. Right, Second Timothy 2.15 calls us to rightly handle the word of truth and, and we could do that incorrectly and then we learn a bit more about the context around that verse we start looking at passages a single verse into what's going on in the verses before and and after it and then and then we might we might come to some different conclusions than we did beforehand right and then and then uh sixthly uh, an unbelief in the authority of scripture see sadly there are those who would say that they love Jesus and they love the Bible, but they only pick and choose, kind of like a spiritual buffet, which parts of the Bible they actually will believe and which parts of the Bible are actually binding on their own lives. And so because of all these things, we all, every single one of us, 
needs to constantly submit our understanding to the authority of God's word and to be challenged by it. One of my mentors used to say that the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It offends all people in all times and all places. <laughs> and uh, and that's true. And if you haven't been offended by the Bible recently, then uh, keep reading. <laughs> so uh, we need to constantly be submitting our understanding of the authority uh, of authority to God's word. Let God's word be our authority. Let what we think, our culture, the things we were taught growing up, all of that submit to God's word. And so for the rest of uh, this uh, episode, we're going to consider a couple of questions or objections to the Bible's teaching broken into two major categories. So the first one is going to be biblical objections, that is objections based on particular biblical texts, and then we're going to look at more general objections. So so firstly, biblical objections. So so. Objection number one could go like this. Well, Aaron, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says that all Christians are to submit to one another. And you've been talking about submission uh, in ways that doesn't seem like everyone is just submitting to one another, right? So doesn't the Bible teach mutual submission? And doesn't that rid us of any idea that that a husband is the head of his wife or that a wife needs to submit to her husband? And so that's a great question. Let's begin by noting that Christians should certainly submit to one another, right? Just as Paul says, it, that is actually what we do in church membership, where we partner together for discipleship and discipline, where we all speak into one another's lives as brothers and sisters in a local church. In fact, it, this is a characteristic of Christians that that as as we consider others, uh, we we consider them better than ourselves, right? Philippians two three, and we strive Romans twelve ten to outdo one another in showing honor. Right, but the question here is whether that kind of characteristic of Christian love and humility flattens or negates all other distinctions in gender roles that we see throughout the Bible. So, does it? Is Ephesians 5.21 kind of the trump card that all other scripture must bend to? Well, no. As we, as we know from our systematic study about scripture— uh, scripture doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't say one thing and then blatantly say another thing in total contradiction and leave us with no solid answers. Now, also, we must remember to examine context if we really want to see what Paul is talking about. And that's actually the key to understanding Ephesians 5. So look at the text with me. And as we do, one of the first things that we will notice is that the word submitting is a participle which means it's a description of what Paul teaches will characterize the wise, spirit-filled believer. We see that in verses 15 and 18. So, for example, the phrase, uh, the working woman, describes the type of woman. She's a working woman. Likewise, the submitting Christian is a description of what a wise, spirit-filled Christian will be like. Also, verse 21 serves somewhat like a heading that introduces the following section, chapter 5, 22 to chapter 6, verse 9. And in this section, Paul goes on to describe three categories of relationships, wives and husbands in chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, 
children and parents in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and then slaves and masters in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. So without taking too much time, notice how in verse 22, Paul tells wives to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But also notice that husbands are never told to submit to their wives. In chapter 6, verse 1, children are instructed to obey your parents in the Lord, which necessarily involves submission. Note as well that parents are not instructed to submit to their kids. I mean, think of how disastrous that would be if my kids ran our house and I had to, as a dad with young kids, submit to them. That would be terrible. Things would not go well at all. Uh, And then chapter 6, verse 5, slaves are instructed to obey their earthly masters. And again, masters are never instructed to obey or submit to their slaves. So if we are going to be using Ephesians 5.21, we need to understand the context of where it falls in the argumentation of Paul so that we can land at a more faithful spot in interpreting what Paul is actually saying and not what we think he's saying by cherry-picking a verse out of context. right? So looking at the context, Paul means this by submission. It means submitting to others according to the authority and order established by God. Or as our definitions in this study of biblical manhood and womanhood have said, submission in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. Particular contexts prescribed by God's word. So when someone busts out Ephesians 5 in these discussions, feel free to read with them the rest of the context of Ephesians and help them see that this verse in the famous words of the princess bride does not mean what you think it means. I do not think that means what you think it means, right? So so uh, feel free to say that. And so that is, the, that is the first objection. The second objection that someone might have to everything that we've been talking about, about biblical manhood and womanhood and submission within the home and the church, comes from 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. And someone might say, well, isn't Paul teaching in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, isn't Paul teaching that women can preach and teach in the gathered congregation, at least under the delegated authority of the elders? Right, so in other words, although a woman clearly can't hold the office of being a pastor elder, right, because of the qualifications for pastors in 1 Peter 5 and Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, right, pastor and elder are used interchangeably, right, so can, so, so we know that, that women cannot be or hold the, the office of pastor in a local church because the qualifications exclude women from that. But can she still preach on a Sunday in the gathered church underneath the oversight of her elders? And this genuine question comes from the idea of whether or not teaching and exercising authority happen at the exact same time, right? And and Christians might genuinely wonder, like, so we have this well-gifted woman who is who is one of those who might even write books or speak at conferences and is a gifted teacher. Like, could she preach at the weekly gathering of the church? She's not one of our elders, but but could she, under the elders, preach? And again, these individuals are not trying to change definitions. They are not trying to allow for women to have the role of pastors or elders in the church. They're just genuinely wondering how how we ought to, as a church, use the gifts that God has given to gifted women 
sisters in the congregation. In other words, can, can a woman can a woman do everything that a non-ordained elder can do? And this is where we need to, again, get into the context of the letter to see if our question might be. So, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Thus, just from reading the verse, it's very clear in context that Paul is not speaking to the office of pastor-elder that comes later in chapter 3, but to the related yet distinct functions of teaching and exercising authority. Also, later in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 17, Paul distinguishes teaching and preaching within authority. They're related, kind of overlapping ideas, but yet clearly distinct ones. Not only that, but in 1 Timothy 2, 11, the verse right before verse 12, Paul makes it clear that the godly woman's attitude and disposition is to be one of learning and listening at the gathering, in the gathered church, with the purpose of submitting to biblical teaching and biblical leadership. And, and Paul ties this idea not to some cultural or contextual marker that we might be able to dismiss as not being culturally relevant, but rather in verse 13, the very next verse, Paul ties it to the creation order. That's what he ties it to, is the creation order. And he writes, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Thus, listen to Paul's reasoning there. For why, for why men must be the ones preaching and teaching at the gathered church is not because men are better public speakers or because they are better at communicating God's word or because they're more faithful or any, any other reason like that. No, I've met, I've met far too many women who are much better at public speaking than I am and who know how to handle God's word superbly well. And Paul's reasoning has, has nothing to do with deficiency within women or superiority among men. Rather, his reasoning is grounded in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, from before the fall, from before brokenness and sin entered the scene, all the way back to God's creation order of men and women. Thus, his argumentation is that God has created men and women, though equal in honor, value, and dignity, he has created us with distinct roles in the home, in the gathered church. And, and we see that all the way back to the garden. Thus, this isn't something that we ought to debate as being cultural or something only evident after the fall. But rather, the reasoning given for men to be those who preach the word in the local gathering of the church goes back to our submission to God's word and his creating of us with different roles. Thus, the reasoning for Paul is transcultural, right? For all cultures at all times, including our own, which is not a super popular statement today in Canada, but it is relative and important that we not be swayed by culture. Instead, we should be informed from God's word and led by it, right? So, can women teach? Yes, many women are exceptional at explaining God's word to God's people, and we have many gifted women in these ways within our church. Therefore, should they teach? 
Absolutely. We desperately need women to teach in a variety of contexts, some of which are shown in the scriptures. So for example, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, older women are exhorted to teach what is good and train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Uh, Proverbs 31, 26, the virtuous woman is described as one who opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Proverbs 1, 8, the son is commanded, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Uh, Ephesians 4, 15, Paul instructs all believers, men and women, to speak the truth in love to one another for their spiritual upbuilding. And so, so yes, yes and amen to all of that. So then you might be wondering, well, should women teach in mixed settings like small groups and classes? Yes, definitely. That's why we have women and men leading small groups and, and every person in a small group is encouraged to use their gifts in those contexts to mutually benefit and encourage one another unto godliness. Uh, we also have many amazing women leading uh, women's book studies and women's Bible studies and starting podcasts and using their gifts on social media to encourage fellow Christians. And, and we need even more of these kinds of things being created, not less. We, we, need, we need more of them. So then, where is this line? What, what does Scripture say? Well, it is simply in the gathering, which for us as a church is our weekly Sunday afternoon gathering as a local church, there where the scriptures are clear that qualified elders, the pastors of the church, or those younger men who are being trained and equipped as pastors, ought to be leading the church in this preaching capacity. So that's objection number two. On to objection number three. Well, Aaron, doesn't Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, remove gender as a basis for distinction of roles in the church? Well, let's read the text together. This is what it says. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, you might wonder, checkmate. Gender is not a basis for distinction of roles in the church, Right? And well, it is true that Galatians 3.28 is dispensing with gender distinctions, but only in a very specific context. See, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 affirms the full equality of male and female, men and women, in Christ, as the text says. Right? That phrase in Christ refers to the covenantal union of all believers in the Lord. So Paul is saying. In the context of salvation, which Galatians chapter 3 is all about, the justification of sinners is by faith apart from works. And the great divisions that separate classes of people from one another are erased. Right, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, we are not saved in different ways, nor do we inherit different promises from God. Right, so no matter what your ethnicity, gender, or social standing Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But friend, Paul isn't wiping out all distinctions together. He's not wiping out them distinctions altogether. After all, he can still speak of Jews and Gentiles as Jews and Gentiles, and to slaves and masters as slaves and masters, and to men and women as 
men and women. Again, Paul's not fighting for genderless blobs who were formerly known as men or women. Rather, he's describing that all are saved in the same way. Men, you are saved by faith through Christ. Women, you are saved by faith through Christ. This is what he is saying. So that's objection number three. Objection number four. Well, didn't Priscilla teach Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 26? In this verse, we read uh, that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So many have asked, well, doesn't this show that the early church didn't exclude women from the teaching office of the church? And firstly, of course, Priscilla helped teach Apollos alongside of her husband. Praise God for how she clearly helped put this fervent yet misguided teacher on the right path, her and her husband. This was a beautiful and a right thing for them to do. And nothing in our understanding of Scripture says that when a husband and wife sit down with an erring preacher, that the wife must sit quietly and say nothing. Nor does Scripture say that single sisters must simply say nothing when someone is mistaken in their understanding of the Bible's clear teachings. No way. <laughs> Rather, all Christians, men and women alike, ought to use their gifts in helping correct false teaching within the local church. Women are not to remain quiet in these times, depending upon others to defend the truth. No, no, no. We want sisters that know the word, that know how to defend the truth of God's word. This is why we must all, men and women and kids and youth, we must all be about the business of learning God's word and growing in our theological understanding of the word so that we might defend the clear truths of Scripture clearly and persuasively using the context of the Bible. But also, we note that this text happened privately. That's an important part of Acts chapter 18. It, it did not happen publicly, right? So like Priscilla doesn't jump up during the sermon and just start correcting this brother. Rather, Apollos was invited into the home of Priscilla and Aquila, like afterwards for supper. And the couple together taught him better the way of Christ and not just the baptism of John the Baptist. So quite simply, this text doesn't speak to the question of whether women should teach publicly in the gathered church. For that, we have to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we discussed earlier. So that's objection four. Now, objection five. Don't you think that all these texts that we've studied are simply a temporary compromise with a cultural status quo? While the main thrust of Scripture is towards the leveling of gender roles? Well, and it, it's true that Scripture does sometimes seek to regulate relationships that are broken without condoning them as permanent ideals. Right? So, for example, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. The same can be said about Paul's instruction to slaves to obey their masters. Even though Paul longed for every slave to be received by his master no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother, Philemon 16. I mean, having said that, though, we can't understand gender roles to be in this same category. Right? Is, is, is it, isn't the trajectory, you might wonder, in the Bible, isn't it away from gender distinctions altogether? Isn't there a hermeneutic of progression away from gender roles? 
to which we would emphatically say no. No. This is because for one thing, as we've demonstrated over and over again in this episode series on biblical manhood and womanhood, the role distinctions that we've been talking about are rooted in the created order even before the introduction of sin. Right? So the redemptive thrust of the Bible does not aim at all at abolishing gender distinctions and roles, but rather it looks at redeeming them. Let me, let me say that again. The redemptive thrust of the Bible does not at all aim at abolishing gender distinctions and roles, but rather at redeeming them. Also, and maybe most clearly, the Bible contains no condemnations of loving headship in marriage. None. Or loving headship in in the church. We see no reason or encouragements to abandon that. For it is this entire idea of headship in marriage and within the church where we see something of the very character and nature of God preserved as these institutions demonstrate the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and the church. So, so we, don't, we don't lose them. We're not progressing beyond them. They, they are within our DNA as men and women preserved by God. Not only that, but into eternity from from when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom and we have our renewed bodies, we will on those days even still be embodied people as embodied men or embodied women, right? When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't come back as an amorphous blob of no gender specific. No, he was still a man, the man Christ Jesus. And there's no reason to assume from God's word that in the future there will be, uh, on that day where we have resurrected bodies, that there will be no gender whatsoever at all. So God is not abolishing gender distinctions. God is about the business of redeeming these gender distinctions and roles according to his word. Now on to objection number six. Well, let's go to the Old Testament. What about Deborah? What about her leadership in the book of Judges? Doesn't that undermine the understanding of gender roles that we've been teaching in this episode series? In, in answering that, any faithful student of the Bible would affirm that women play a significant and uh, religious and even at times crucial leadership role in the Bible. Yes and amen. And praise God for all the many wonderful and godly women throughout redemptive history. I mean, we could do an entire episode, uh, multiples, about the wonderful women of the Bible. But just think, for example, of Esther and Rahab and their roles in the deliverance of the Jews. However, we must consider two things when we're thinking through this. First, most examples of female leadership appear in roles other than those of the highest human religious authority. Right? While there are prophetesses, uh, with that's sorry, that's a weird word to say. Prophetesses. Uh, I don't. I don't know where to put the emphasis on that word. Uh, like like Huldah in Second Kings twenty two in the Old Testament, and even Anna in the New Testament, Luke chapter two verse thirty six. It's worthy to note that there are not any women priests, or women heads of tribes, or women kings. Right. I mean. I mean. Even Second Kings eleven, uh, Athaliah wrongly usurped the throne, was murdered and the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And when we open the New Testament, we read that Jesus chose his 12 disciples, later named apostles, and that they're all men. 
and there's no evidence that there were ever women pastors in the early church at all. In fact, when we were walking through the Bible, the Bible is uh, consistently providing a general pattern of male leadership for God's people as judges, kings, priests, elders, and prophets. Again, not because men are better. We see, oh man, so many men fail in so many in so many ways. This is not because of that at all. This is just the way that the Lord has caused a distinction to be seen and what it demonstrates actually about who he is, especially as we're seeing the relationship between a man and his wife and what that says and what that speaks about, about who God the Father is and how he relates to God the Son and this, this, this mystery that marriage is that, that reveals to us the character and the nature of God. And, and, yet, and yet there are exceptions to this normative pattern. And that's what we see actually in Deborah, who, uh, as we know from Judges, was both a prophetess and a judge. However, as we know, the events recorded in the book of Judges are not illustrating God's ideal for his people. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't read the book of Judges and walk away with that. Now, this book is descriptive. It describes what happens. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying, uh, it's not prescribing, this is the great way to live. Right? In fact, the book of Judges is a tragic cycle of one mistake after another, uh, and, and it's outlined actually by a verse found twice in the book, and it's characterized, the book of Judges, by this phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? So, so, so given the awful spiritual state of Israel, Deborah's judgeship is recorded not to signal that female leadership is ideal in every time and context. Rather, it shows just how far from God's design and purposes Israel had strayed. Right, so properly read in context, Deborah's role as judge serves as God's indictment of Israel. And the fact that Barak, who's a man, would see the glory of battle go to a woman, Deborah, for his unwillingness to faithfully follow God just underscores this whole point. But in all this, we should in no way despise or ignore Deborah, we should rather be thankful for her and for all the ways that she followed God faithfully when Israel abandoned him. Now, remember, the issue has never been, can a woman lead or teach? That's not the issue. The issue is not ability, but the issue is about what ought to be done. I mean, Deborah is a strong woman who teaches us much about how to stand up for what is right in tragic times. She indeed is a wonderful example of character to us, the kind of woman that we ought to be thankful for and name our daughters after. However, there is no compelling argument that her role at this season in Israel's history somehow undoes the clear meaning of the New Testament text about men's and women's roles in the church. And so, so now that we've looked at several of the most common uh, biblical questions and objections to uh, biblical manhood and womanhood and some of those distinctions of, of roles, uh, let's look at a few of the common general objections. So we're going from biblical questions or biblical objections to just general objections. And let's, let's begin here because it's one of the main objections that arise in this discussion. And it's this. Does teaching male headship encourage domestic abuse? Does teaching male headship encourage domestic abuse? Right, some have argued that the biblical teaching on gender roles isn't just outdated, but it perpetuates harm. 
A, a Pulitzer Prize-winning story on domestic abuse in South Carolina in 2015 suggested that deeply held beliefs about the sanctity of marriage and women's place in the home lead to a culture where abuse is all too prevalent. Not only that, but it seems like, man, every week or two now, this is exactly what we see in some some churches where there is just this abusive power of these men that prevail themselves on those who are of less physical strength and, and they just have their way in, in all these really abusive ways. It's, what do we do with that? Well, I think as, as Christians, we must mourn this egregious sin and stand up for the victims. We must, as Christians, hold these men to account and protect women from such abuse. We ought to do so. And in this, we recognize that this world is a tragically fallen place, and it makes us long for righteousness to prevail. And yet, tragically, we also recognize that women are not just mistreated within conservative Christian contexts. No, we, we if, if anything, the Me Too movement, all these things that we see happening in the world around us, all the, man, all the litigious things that we see happening in Silicon Valley and in Hollywood, all demonstrate that, that people can be mistreated in both traditional or conservative and progressive or liberal settings. I mean, just all of the recent revelations of how many women are taken advantage of in Hollywood and Silicon Valley are just outrageous. Right? So, so we, we must be firm in teaching that the Bible nowhere justifies a man abusing a woman in any way, in any way, whether it be physical or verbal or emotional. Let me say that again. The Bible nowhere justifies a man abusing a woman in any way, be it physical, verbal, or emotional. And the Bible nowhere calls a woman to submit to such abuse. The Bible nowhere calls a woman to submit to such abuse. Right, so to that end, we should never confuse the Bible's teaching with any form of traditionalism that endorses or leads to chauvinism or oppressive forms of patriarchy. Right, to justify domestic violence in the name of the Bible, in the name of Christianity, is absolutely appalling. It undermines one's profession to be a Christian, and God will pour out his fierce wrath on men who are unrepentantly uh, misusing their authority to harm others. God cares deeply about those who are the most vulnerable, most susceptible to abuse, because he cares deeply about how authority is exercised. And the misuse of authority is fundamentally a lie about God. To the contrary, it ought to be the case that women feel the most prized, most prized in Bible-teaching churches, where they are loved uniquely as women and prized and honored uniquely as women, where their distinct attributes and contributions are cherished and exalted, not ignored or suppressed. And so will there be domestic abuse, both physical and emotional, in a fallen, sinful world? Tragically, yes. And will some abusers attempt to justify their abuse 
by grossly misapplying the idea of biblical headship? Even more tragically, yes, they will. Is domestic abuse or the misuse of God's word to justify it ever legitimate in God's eyes or in the eyes of any true church? Absolutely not. Is the sinful misuse of a truly biblical idea a reason to discard the idea from the Christian life? No, it is not. Friends, our our aim and our heartbeat is that, one, as men, we would use our hands, our words, our thoughts to serve the women of our church. Firstly and foremostly, our wives. Brothers, brothers, look at your wife. Is she flourishing to be all that God has made her to be? Is she flourishing mentally and sexually and emotionally and physically and relationally? Is she, is she flourishing to be all that God has created her to be? If not, you need to repent of any ways that you have not been allowing her to flourish. Repent of ways that you've used your words or your demeanor or your hands to oppress her or to cause her to not flourish. You need to repent of that, ask her forgiveness, and then strive to live in such a way that you're using your strength and you're using your ability to protect and provide for her that she might flourish. And you need to lay down your life to serve her. That is that is what we mean when we talk about men that love their wives, men that will die that lay down their lives so that their wife will flourish. Men that will love their wife as Christ has loved the church. This self-sacrificial, loving, protective, provisional death of yourself that, that she might flourish. That, that, is, that, is, that is what we mean by all that we are talking about, about biblical manhood. And so I, I pray our congregation would always stand up for the good of women generally and the women of this church in particular as we serve these godly women, as these sisters of ours in the faith. So that's, that's objection, or, uh, objection number one, maybe kind of a general objection number one. And secondly, if God has genuinely called, if God has genuinely called a woman to be a pastor, you might wonder, who are you to say she can't be one? Well, friend, the simple answer here is that We don't believe that God calls women to be something that he doesn't call them to be in his word. If God's word is very clear on on who can be pastors and who he calls as pastors, then, then God gets to decide. And God won't say one thing in his word and then another thing to another person. This will not this will not happen, right? We test everything by God's word. And this is because God always, without exception, acts consistently with his word. Right? So, so if the Bible teaches that God wills for men alone to bear the primary teaching and governing responsibilities in the local church, that is the office and function of the elder pastor, then God will never act contrary to that. 
Now, it may be that many women who feel a call to such ministry are indeed being called to ministry, yes and amen, just not to being a pastor elder, right? As we've discussed, there are numerous ministries, including vocational ones, in which women should be encouraged and welcomed. Women should love theology, know theology, be taught these things. Women could serve in a plethora of, of ways within our church, and we desperately need women to do that. Yes and amen. So, so ladies, if you sense this sense of call into ministry, the best course of action would be to recognize that the, the boundaries that Scripture draws and then enter into conversations in prayer as uh, other mature believers, such as the elders, help you think about these aspirations, help you test things out. And then, yes, yes and amen. If God's calling you to to help learn how to uh, teach and preach, that you may lead women's conferences, that you may teach women's Bible studies, that you may do X, Y, or Z, we want to help equip you in to do all of these things. We, so we, we want to help you think about all of these aspirations and serve you and equip you for all that God is calling you to do within the bounds of his word. Yes and amen. This is our aim. We want to see you flourish. We, we know that God has gifted you, dear sister, with lots of great gifts. We, we want to help fan that into flame in ways that God's word says that it can be. So uh, let us come alongside of you in that. Now, uh, another objection would be to be thinking about all these things. And, and you might just wonder, well, it just doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem fair. And let me say that at the end of the day, I think many of our common objections to the Bible's teaching on gender fall into that category, right? In our age of equal rights, to deny access to any position or reserve any duty for one gender alone is seen as sexist and downright unfair. But we must remember that authority structures don't entail greater human value or essential superiority of those in charge or minimize the human value or imply essential inferiority of those under their charge. Right? That's the fundamental error of our cultural presuppositions. Right? That for two people to be equal, they must be able to do the same thing. The assumption is that we can't have differentiation and hierarchy without also having inferiority or, uh, of dignity and worth. But the Bible rejects this assumption. The fundamental issue is one of biblical authority, right? So at the end of the day, Christians must be willing to submit to God's word, even when it challenges our instincts or preferences. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged by the reality that men and women experience their full humanity when they function in the manner that God intended in his creation of them. See, when we are most free as humans, we are most free as humans when we affirm the way that God made us to be. His instructions to us in his word aren't intended to burden us. They're given in kindness as he invites us into the abundant life that only he can give. Now, so why does all this matter? Well, gender is central to our personhood and how God made us. It affects who we are, our sense of identity. It affects uh, our uh, individual discipleship. It, it, it affects how we act as a husband and wife and how we parent. It affects how we live together as members of a local church. And it affects our witness to the world. So lastly, sisters, if you ever struggle to see value in your labors and how God can use you through his design of your God-given femininity, 
I, I want you to think of just some of the dear sisters, even here in our own church. And I want you to ask them questions about things like this. Now, I want to ask even our, our pastor's wives. Ask Leticia and Judith and Samantha how they use their gifts and the way that God has distinctly wired them and, and what that means and looks like for them as women. These dear sisters are great examples of just godly, godly sisters who are flourishing in many different ways in their lives. And they would love to chat with you about what that looks like. They would, they would love to explain and see how, how we as pastors are encouraging and equipping them, not just as their husbands, but also as their pastors, uh, to be all that God has created them to be. And oh, I pray for just more and more women of our church to be raised up and equipped in various ways, whether that's by starting prayer meetings or starting various missions uh, endeavors or, or, or many other things going on uh, in our church uh, to be a light into our city. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Basecamp as we have been uh, talking up in this uh, second to the last episode in our Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series. We want to thank as well the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, again, they have graciously put together a lot of this material um, that we have been using to be walking through this and equipping our church to know how we might strive to live as a local church in the midst of our current context as we're striving to be lights in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation. Uh, specifically here in Canada, just with everything that's been going on the last couple of years. And it's been, uh, as you know, just harder and harder as we're striving to live for the glory of God uh, in the midst of just uh, crazy times. And so I'm really thankful for Capitol Hill Baptist and the way that they've allowed this material to be used by us as a ministry. Then I pray that it would be helpful in your life. If this episode has been helpful, I would encourage you to share this with a friend and, and maybe chat through some of the things that we see here and, and continue to explore some of the context of, of some of the letters and some of the things that we've been talking about in this, in this episode series. So as we're striving to make disciples, to make disciples, to make disciples, thanks for partnering with us on mission and in the gospel. Mm-hmm.